Have a seat. Uh, good morning. My name is Stephen. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at All Souls. It's good to see you all uh, this, this, mother, uh, this Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are moms. Um, we are at the very beginning of Mark's gospel still, and the gospel starts out by Jesus proclaiming a, a very simple message. And as he goes out preaching and he says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. Very, very simple. That's the central message. And one of the things that people loved about Jesus is that whenever he would teach, whenever he would preach, the kingdom God itself, it felt like it was near. Like they could see it. They could imagine themselves in the kingdom. But we don't actually hear much about what the kingdom of God is like until we get to chapter 4. And the way that Jesus starts talking about the kingdom is primarily through stories. And these stories, they kind of give rise to imagination. They're part of the communication. They, they kind of put an interruption in the mental process because they give your mind space to expand, to wonder. The story is part of the communication. He's slowly kind of bringing the kingdom out into light, uh, like these, just these little comparisons that cover just one facet of reality of the kingdom. And then like a, somebody rotating a diamond in the sun, it catches the light in a different way and you see something different all together. And he does this so that we can see what the kingdom is about, so that ultimately we can participate in the kingdom. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick up at verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, God, our Father, we come seeking a word that can only come from you. So we ask that you would be gracious to our seeking, that you would draw us into the mystery and the power of your kingdom that comes like a seed and causes everything to flourish. 
pray that you would draw us into the glory of your kingdom, that we can participate in its flourishing. And we ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, we're going to start out with a little audience participation this morning, okay? Okay? All right, all right. All right, I'm going to put up a few images on the screen, three very different things. And I want you to turn to your neighbor and figure out what do these things have in common. If you don't know what you're looking at, we've got Spud Web, we've got a dung beetle, we've got Baby Yoda. All right? Ten seconds. Go. All right, you guys got this figured out? All right, here we go. Ready? On the left, we have Anthony Jerome Webb, spud as he was known in the association, one of the shortest guys at 5'7", ever to make it into the NBA, just for a sense of scale. Here he is next to Manute Bull, one of the tallest guys at 7'7". Look at the hops on that. I mean, that is just absurd. He was cut from his high school basketball team until his senior year, and then he averaged 26 points per game that senior year, went on to NC State, won the NBA Slam Dunk Championship, repping for the Hawks in 1986. All right, pretty impressive. Next up, we have a South African dung beetle. It is less than two inches in length. It weighs less than one-fifth of a pound. But proportionally, this is the strongest living thing on the planet. It is able to carry a load equivalent to 1,000 times its own weight. For a sense of what that is, think of a human being being able to lift 180,000 pounds. No small matter. And then finally, we have Grogu, Baby Yoda, pound for pound, little guy, but one of the strongest people in a galaxy far, far away. So what do they have in common? Well, give yourself a gold star if you said that they embody the paradox of small mightiness, of hidden strength, of unassuming greatness. In each case, what appears to be small and insignificant is actually quite powerful. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he does it by telling stories. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says, well, it's different than what you might think. It's like a mustard seed, small, unimpressive, and yet it has an outsized power relative to its origins. And Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom works. To all the world, it's going to look small and ineffective, but it has the power to lead to flourishing. This is how transformation takes place in a life. This is how transformation takes place in the world. And if you want to be part of this flourishing kingdom, you're going to need to pay attention. So we're going to take a look at two things this morning, the process of the kingdom, how the kingdom works in the world, and our participation in the kingdom. That is how it looks when we are drawn into its unassuming power. So first, the process of the kingdom. 
The Bible begins with the story of a garden. It's this image of the way things are supposed to be. Um, God creating human beings and all of nature and knitting them together into this state of flourishing. And, and it ends with a vision of, of heaven and earth reconciled in a garden-like city. And every single bit of human experience takes place between these two stories. And over and over again, Jesus describes this as the kingdom. This is the, the picture of flourishing. It's, it's loaded with all kinds of meaning for the people of Israel. All kinds of hopes and aspirations that people have been holding on to for generations. Some of you know what it's like to be part of holding on to hope for generations. And it spoke, the kingdom, it spoke of this gap between the future and the present. The here and now where things are not as they are meant to be. And the joy that awaits and the fulfillment that comes when that kingdom marches into the present. Kingdom was a promise of the return of peace, of shalom, the, the restoration of things back to God's original intent in creation, a world made shiny and new when all that is old and weathered has new life breathed into it, the marriage of heaven and earth. And so when Jesus starts talking about this kingdom, he is setting against this, this hope that the wildest dreams of the prophets of Israel had, they had this vision of a place where what God wants to have happen, that is what happens. This place where God's people were meant to flourish, where they were meant to lead the world into this rich state of affairs where every single gift is offered out of abundance and every single gift is offered with joy and delight. That is the kingdom, Jesus says. But there's this thing that happens when you start talking about the future, when you start pointing toward hope, when you start talking about what is going to be, you start to stir up all kinds of longing. Especially when the reality that people are living in is so different from that future. You see, Israel under Rome was economically ravished. Uh, taxation was crazy. The power of the state was used to keep the people in the place, not to lead the people into flourishing. And so they were looking for, they were hoping for, they were praying for a Messiah who would come and lead them out. Someone who would be this political ruler to restore the kingdom. And, and, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is all that anybody can talk about. Because this guy teaches like no one else. He has the power to heal diseases. He has power over the spiritual forces of darkness. And all this chatter is, could this be the one? Could this be the political leader who's going to put us back on the map, who's going to drive Rome out, and who's going to usher in this reign of the kingdom of God? And so with all of this spiritual, emotional, political uh, energy that's kind of got people wound up as tight as a spring, they're just waiting for one thing to spring the trap and for all of that energy to be released out in the world. The people have come hearing Jesus ready to throw down. They will grab their swords. They will grab their helmets. They will bring in that kingdom by force if he just says the word because that is how kingdoms work in the world. I mean, we know what that's like. We still use language like empire and, and dynasty to describe things that flex power. This power that looks like overwhelming force over a short amount of time. That's how you win. In war, that's how you win. It's the 
army of Goliaths that end up standing in victory. In, in sports, that's how you win. It's the stronger athletes. It's the, the bigger payrolls. They, they, they're the ones who go home with the trophy. That's how you win in business. It's the dude with $47 billion apparently just lying around who can buy up all the shares. I don't really have an opinion about that. I don't use Twitter. I don't get it. When it comes to building empires, they come through force of will. They come through strength, usually through acts of violence, the stronger over the weaker, like a meteorite smashing, like a hammer hitting. Kingdoms come by force. That's what people are expecting. And so Jesus, he stands up and he says, you're looking for a Messiah. You're looking for someone to lead you into God's kingdom. Well, let me tell you what God's kingdom is like. It is not like an army conquering everything in its path. No, it's like a farmer scattering mustard seed on the ground. It starts to grow. It's slow. It's almost imperceptible. You barely notice that anything is happening. I mean, can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the confusion that the people felt? They kept come ready for a fight. There's no music swelling. There's no stirring speech. There's no once more unto the breach, dear friends. Nothing like that. They just hear a bunch of stories about God seeding the kingdom like a farmer sowing seed. God planting a garden. This is what we have been waiting for. I mean, have you ever watched somebody plant a garden? Have you ever watched a seed try to grow? Somebody in our last service said that they had. I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm glad you like that, Lonnie. I mean, it's not exactly riveting stuff watching a seed grow, right? Nobody's going to make a movie out of that nonsense. But in this seed, Jesus says there's something so powerful that it can produce something as large as a tree, as wide as a harvest. That is what my kingdom is like, Jesus says. It is a way of thinking about power that is fundamentally different from anything that has come before and anything that has come since. And here's the thing, yeah, I mean, if you were to take a seed and you were to put it on a giant slab of granite, what would happen? The granite, it would win every single time. It's going to have the seed bake in the sun. It's going to shrivel up. It's going to become useless. Big, giant rock, tiny little seed. Rock wins every time. But if you take that same seed and you plant it under the rock, what's going to happen? Seed is going to win every single time. This has life in it. And that life grows steadily. That life grows patiently. It has the power to break through even the hardest surface. And so Jesus says, make no mistake, my kingdom is coming. When everything around looks like defeat, it is coming with unassuming power. It is coming with hidden strength. But it is coming. Andy Crouch delivered this talk recently um, in which he makes the point that the most frequently used biblical metaphors when describing the flourishing of the kingdom are agriculture. They're an olive tree. They're a vine. All of these things are abundant in the life of the Mediterranean. Both of them take an awful lot of time to produce fruit. It can take a full three years to get from the initial planting of a brand new grapevine to that first harvest. 
And then it takes another two years for that first vintage to actually be bottled. Olive trees take seven years from the time that they are planted until the time they become mature enough to bear fruit. And oftentimes that first fruit that they bear is not the best fruit. But the thing is, there are olive trees that have been bearing fruit for generations. There are some in the Mediterranean, in Italy, who have been bearing fruit for over 2,000 years. That is the process of the kingdom, Jesus says. There is no such thing as instant flourishing. The seed takes time to work its way into the soil. And so if that is the process, if if that is the organic growth that comes not like a volcano blast, but like a, a branch abiding on the vine, if that is the process that Jesus uses to pull the future into the lives of his people now, allowing the seed to come in and break up everything and create something new, then how do we participate in this kingdom? What does it mean for us? Well, there are two aspects of this. It's how we participate in the kingdom personally and how we participate together as a, in a society. And these two things are not unrelated to one another because personal change always precedes corporate change in the world. The seed of the kingdom gets into God's people and then it spills out into the world. To follow after Jesus is to experience the the flourishing, the shalom of the kingdom, to experience that, that space where faith, hope, joy, and love, they get in you and then they come flooding out of you. And it's not primarily a process of knowing more things. As the philosopher Jamie Smith likes to say, we are not brains on a stick. We don't always do what we know. So following after Jesus, while, while you get some new information, it is not primarily about having new information. Jesus wants to put the seed of the kingdom in you. He wants to renovate your heart from the inside out. And like seed breaking through the soil, fundamentally this is an organic change that happens in you. But the problem is this, this gap that exists when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom in the future and the kingdom in the present. That same exact gap exists in all of us, in our lives. There is a gap between everything that I am saying and everything that I'm preaching and everything I've been saying and preaching about for the last couple years about how God gathers us together to be with Jesus. He builds us up in the image of Jesus and sends that image out into the world. There's a gap between what we know and what we experience in everyday life. There is a gap between what the gospel says about me, that I am a beloved son of God, there is a gap between what I experience and know about myself, particularly in my worst moments. There's a gap in my life between what I know to be true and what I actually do with all that knowledge. If you think it's bad for you, put yourself in my position. I talk about this stuff every week. I was out at a a retreat in California a month ago uh, about spiritual formation and the disciplines, how we change, what does transformation look like. It's all stuff you guys have heard if you've been around for the last couple of years. I'm not holding back on you or anything like that. But this woman came up to me at the end of it, and thank you. It was all very helpful, you know, really challenging. Sure, must be easy, though, for someone like you who thinks about this stuff all the time. And I was like, whoa, 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 time out. I think about this stuff all the time, but that does not make it easy. 
Neil Postman describes this information action ratio, this gap between what we know and what we do. And 90% of the time, all that's thinking about it means is that I'm just acutely aware of all of the ways that I don't measure up. But grace reminds me that I'm better than I used to be. Reminds me of where I started and the slow and steady ways that the kingdom is taking root. So often we think about spiritual transformation as a thing that we can just throw on the hyperdrive and make happen fast. But, but here's what Jesus says. My kingdom is working like a seed. It is not like a sledgehammer that's going to come and break up everything and fix it and, and destroy everything that's wrong with you. It is like a seed that slowly gets planted in your heart. And I'm not saying that people do not experience dramatic conversion experience or or, or moments when they have known the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and it's been real and it's been overwhelming. I, I have had those moments. They are few and far between in my life, but they've shattered all of the categories that I had. And the, the only way that I can make sense of it is in language that belongs to the mystics. But the fundamental way that people change is over time. Slowly, through this powerful, slow, but barely perceptible process of the seed of the kingdom beginning to work its way into your life and renovate you from the inside out. We want change to happen fast. Ted Lasso tells his players, think like a goldfish, right? What he means by that is, you know, forget your mistakes, you know, move on with your life. Here's the thing about goldfish, though. The, the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. The average attention span of a human being is eight seconds. We are losing the goldfish, people. Season three, Ted Lasso needs to say, hey, think like a human. We are incredibly impatient. If we are hurting, we don't want the pain to teach us. We want to feel better. If our marriage is broken, we we don't want to know how to give and flex and work through that. We just want it to be fixed. If we are discouraged, we want comfort right now. Come on, God, do it now. Come in with a wrecking ball. Blow it all apart so you can make it right. But Jesus says, no, that's that's not how the kingdom works. I'm not a wrecking ball. I'm a farmer sowing seed, quietly, inevitably making you too. The harvest will come. And this is... A great comfort, but it's also challenging because it means that if you want to participate in this kingdom, it requires your cooperation. And don't get me wrong, the the growth of the kingdom from a seed is a mystery just like grace. You cannot manufacture this. You cannot produce this on your own. You are saved by grace and not by your best effort. The farmer sows the seed, but he is not responsible for the growth. He cannot control it. He doesn't even know how it happens. But as Dallas Willard says, as I've quoted this many times, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to a posture of earning. There is still work to do, my friends. The farmer readies the field. He he sows the seed. He works the harvest. No kernel will sprout. No garden will come if you leave the seed sitting on the dining room table. You got to water, you got to fertilize, you got to weed, you got to tend. That's why we spend so much time talking about the spiritual practices, about arranging your life for transformation, about building a scaffolding for your life. It's got to be something for the vines to hang on so they can grow. 
You don't produce the growth, but practicing the way of Jesus, it does take effort. It takes spiritual practices of meeting with Jesus daily in the scriptures and trusting the story of his love for you, rooting your identity in that story of love for you over and against the anxiety-producing narratives of our world that would hang your rootedness on something else. It takes spiritual community, it takes confession, it takes repentance, it takes choosing to practice the way of Jesus when it is unpopular or when it is costly. And most of the time when you do these things, it looks and feels like nothing is happening. It looks like transformation is somebody else's story. But then deep down beneath the surface, below what anyone else can see, below what you can see, the roots have gone in and they have connected you to the source of life. And you start to notice that, you know, you'll get cut off in traffic. And a year ago, this would have set you off. But you find that your, your grip is loosened around the steering wheel. And you find that the words that come out of your mouth that, that would have been harsh before instead are, are replaced by words of grace. Or you get a note from your boss and you're, you're no longer filled with anxiety about this because you have this slow and steady realization that you are okay in the kingdom of God. Or your teenage son does something that usually fills you with judgment. But you're able to stop and see him not as somebody that you're there to control, but as somebody in whom the seed of the kingdom is also taking root. Not just a son, but a brother in Christ. And over time, you're a little more patient. You're a little less prone to be controlled by bad habits. You're a little more kind, a little less harsh, a little less reactionary, a little more responsive, a little less distractible, and a little bit more engaged in the things that really matter. Well, what is that? It's the seed of the kingdom starting to sprout up in your life. And this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, the one who wants to sow that seed of hope in you to make you new. It is the nature of the kingdom, though, to expand. And so once that seed gets in you, it's going to carry you into the deep and broken places of this world. First, by changing and breaking up the soil of the deep and broken places in you. Those, those places that keep you concerned only about your own flourishing and then it's going to release you to become an agent of his peace out in the world in the broken and unreached parts of the world. And you know that you come across those places everywhere you go, right? Which is why in Jesus, the seed of the kingdom goes with you. That personal transformation, it carries you out into the public sphere, not as culture warriors coming at the world with swords and spears, but as culture creators who trust that Jesus has already beaten those swords and spears into plowshares and has given you the task of cultivating the soil. And we toil and we till the soil wherever we go, wherever we have influence, whether that is a lot of power in the city you sow that seed faithfully in the way that you, you work and your business and, the, and how you, you join for the common good and how you love your enemies and how you treat your employees or, or whether that is in the daily work of caring for children and grandchildren and loving your neighbors and putting food on the table as Krista prayed, all of those ways that nurture and, and kindness reveals the heart of God. Whatever plot of earth God has given you, you sow that seed and you trust that God will bring about the harvest. 
A while back, I did a funeral for a woman who worked faithfully at the church that I was at uh, in the nursery for many years. Uh, She started working there when she was 53, and she stopped only a little while before she died at age 83. And she didn't need the money. She did it because she loved it. She did it because it was her joy. I was always astonished that Char had the strength to chase around the kids in the nursery who for some reason always seemed to not be wearing pants. And anyway, when she was done chasing them, and in the case of my daughter, wrestling them to the ground to put the pants back on, she would do so with grace. She would do so with a smile. She was never put off by this. And whenever I would go in and pick up my kids, Char would be there with a smile on her face, usually carrying a child that looked like it might outweigh her. And she did it with joy. She did it effortlessly. She did it because God gave her a heart to love them. It's this place where she found a lot of life. Well, when we got around to her funeral, we usually had most of our funerals in a chapel that seated about 400 people. And that's where we planned to have hers, although I I noticed about 10 minutes before the service started that there was not going to be enough room. It was already full up, and there were people still coming in. And so we had to move over to the sanctuary that seated 1,500 people. And the entire bottom floor of that sanctuary was filled up. And when I was done with the service, people just one after another would come out and tell about how Char had just, with her quiet, joyful, graceful way, made an impact on their life. One woman came in particular who said, I came to this nursery when I was a baby. My mom put me in this place with Char. And so I knew that when I had a child, I knew exactly where I was going to go because that child I know was going to be loved. That's what we do, friends. You take whatever plot of earth God has given you, and you sow the kingdom. And you keep on loving your neighbors, you keep on loving your enemies, you keep on engaging in hospitality, you keep giving generously, you keep working for justice and mercy, you keep caring for the vulnerable and binding up wounds of the afflicted, you keep putting on faith, hope, and love, even when everything in the world tells you not to, because one day Jesus is going to take that seed, he's going to sow, the harvest is going to come, and it will renew everything. That's how the seed of the kingdom makes its way into the world. We celebrated Easter just a few weeks ago. Biggest day in the history of the world. But you could argue empirically that very little changed that first Easter morning. The way the Gospels tell the story, resurrection was met with doubt, not with a big old revival, right? It was not like there was this massive explosion that that happened, was felt and heard from miles around. And when people heard about it and and knew what it was, they they went in and they're like, well, let me be part of that. It wasn't like that at all. It was from a historical perspective at the cultural level, very little change that day. But there was a small seed of people. First the women, then the disciples. And the seed of the kingdom was planted in them. And the ripple effects of that have been sounding throughout history. When was the last time you met a citizen of the Roman Empire? But you are surrounded by people who, in Apostles Paul's words, are citizens of heaven. 
Because the seed of the kingdom has gotten in. There are more people now who know the name of Jesus than at any point in human history. That, my friends, is a pretty dang big tree. And maybe that's because God is not interested in bringing in the kingdom with the force of a megaton bomb. Maybe that's because the, the kingdom isn't like going to war or, or building impressive monuments that mark the apex of power at a particular moment in time, but it is more like planting a vine, an olive tree, a mustard seed. Something that starts out small and flourishes over time, produces its best fruit later. And friends, the best is yet to come.